Hey, this is Kevin Weatherby at Save the Cowboy. I want you to tow that stirrup, throw a leg over the candle, take a deep seat, and pull your hat down tight. I ain't gonna tolerate no whining or griping, so let's all strike a long trot down that narrow trail and learn how to ride with God. Come on! What you waiting on? Let's go. Your Bibles and you would like to follow along, we are going to be today in Genesis chapter 4 and 1 Samuel 15. Uh, Over the years, I have the privilege of talking to people about Christ in in a bunch of manner of of maturity levels and beliefs and and questions and and one of the things that I've always found just a little bit humorous is is a lot of times I like to get to know somebody before they know what I do for a living. You know what I mean? Because I, there's just something about it, especially a cowboy, man. You know, you, you meet somebody for the first time. You're like, hey, how you doing? And especially if you're working cattle and stuff. And if they don't know that you're a pastor or a preacher, then later on, you know, they, they just treat you different. You know, they're like, oh, well, so Kevin, what do you do? Oh, you know, we run some cows. A lot of times I won't even say anything, you know. And, but somebody usually says, oh, he's the pastor of the cowboy church. And the first thing that always happens is they're like, oh, well, I'm sorry that I said this. Or I'm sorry. And I'm like, oh, please stop, <laughs> you know. Um, but what's funny is that how often people just start to ramble, when they find out you're a preacher, you know, they're like, oh, well, blah, 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 well, I'm a, you know, I'm a believer too, and blah, 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 blah. But, but really what's funny is, is the little thing that happens when the excuses start to come out in front of the preacher. Because they say that they're believers, right? They say that they're believers, but then what happens next is they tend to not tell you what they believe, but what they don't believe. And it happens all the time. And I mean, Ty and Mitch and some of these other guys that have preached, Caleb and Willie and, and Shay and, and every, Kendall and everybody else has probably experienced this. They really say, oh yeah, well, I'm a believer. I believe in God. And I'm like, oh, you do? Do you have a home church? And they're like, oh no, I don't have a home church. But like, I, I don't believe that you have to go to church to be a Christian. And I say, Okay. And then they say, well, you know, I, and, I, and, and I'm not saying that these are just, they sit there and list it, but these things come up all the time. And they say, well, I don't really feel like, you know, I, I don't really have to read the Bible because I've already read it cover to cover like three or four times, so I don't have to read it anymore. Okay. Okay. <laughs> you know? And, and then they say, well, you know, uh, I, I just don't feel like you know, churches are just after money. I don't believe that churches should just be after money because God loves a cheerful giver. And if you're cheerful about giving 25 cents, God is cheerful about that 25 cents. Okay. (laughs) Okay. You know, and and so I've always found all of these things funny. And, And I've said this before, but you can usually spot somebody that that still has a childlike faith. You know, I'm not saying that they don't, but you you can still see somebody that has a childlike faith. And and there's usually one really big one that these people will use. And they'll say something like, well, real Christians aren't supposed to judge. Mm. Well, see, that's not actually true. 
That's not actually true. And, and I know in the Sermon on the Mount, you know, Jesus says, don't judge or you will be judged. But, but if you go back and you knew what you were talking about and you had had some training, biblical training and some knowledge, you would understand that, that really what Jesus said is not to judge unfairly. You know, don't hold somebody to this standard when you only hold yourself to this standard, right? Because even in Timothy and Titus, I guarantee you I have judged Ty, I have judged Mitch, I have judged Tyler, I have judged Caleb, I have judged Shay. You want to know why I've judged them? Because they've got up here and preached. And the Bible says if anybody's going to do this, then they need to be this type of person, right? And, and so where we are going with all of this is here. My kid's grandfather on their mom's side was a pastor, has been a pastor for about 40 years. And so when I became a pastor, I really leaned on him to kind of guide me through this murky water filled with sheep that have teeth like wolves. And, um, and he gave me some advice. And then he ended up in conversation one day, and, and this is when things really started to click, and, and, I, and I think that y'all are going to learn something about Save the, not just about God today, but about Save the Cowboy, is that uh, he told me that way back in the, in the late 1900s, there, you know, th this is a millennium ago, a millennia ago, okay? This is way back when. If, if any of you remember the previous millennia, you were alive during this deal. But uh, I call it the great Sunday school experiment of the late 1900s. And what happened was that a denomination really decided that they needed instead of just having church, that they wanted to put a huge emphasis on kids. Because what was happening was that, that kids were being brought to Sunday school, but, but they, as they grew up, they didn't go to church. And so they were really going to put a lot of money and effort and volunteers into raising up godly kids. And so they put these huge expenditures onto Sunday school. I mean, they bought buses. Man, you, you just put your flag up on your mailbox and we will get your kid up, brush its teeth and get it to church, okay? After school, I mean, they did everything for these kids. And man, I loved what they were talking about. I loved what they were talking about. But the problem was that it was an experiment. And you, you have to let these kids that are, you know, four and five all the way up through youth group and then to be adults to really figure out it's a 20-year experiment, right? And this is what they found out, that despite all of the training and all of the, you know, really, I don't want to say forceful, but just trying to teach kids at various levels up until they're 18 about the, the, the need to have a relationship with God and to continue that relationship and all of that. Now, I'm not saying that all of their work, and, and I'm not even saying it, the man that did it said this to me, that despite all of their best efforts, that when those kids grew up, you know what they did? They did exactly what their parents did. When they had kids, they stopped going to church and they took their kids to church to Sunday school and then would go pick them up after church. Because that, 
back in the late 1900s, that's kind of what you did. And where I'm pulling these two things together is, I think that there, and, and, and let me say this, present company excluded, okay? Present company excluded. But I think what we have is that a huge part of the so-called Christians or believers in America have a Sunday school level education and that's it. You know, they, they know what Noah's Ark is because their parents decorated their room in Noah's Ark. You know, it has, you know, some people that are smiling on a boat and the giraffe's head is sticking out and the little dove is flying around, right? And, and then you have, you know, the Garden of Eden is like, when anytime you say Garden of Eden, everybody immediately goes to the Garden of Eden movie poster, right? Man, woman, naked, fig trees, apple, and snake. That is the universal movie poster for creation and the Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve, right? And then you have all of these stories. And, and really, what I'm afraid of, what I am seeing, is that most so-called believers that don't have a home church that do not regularly attend a service or listen to them or anything like that. All of these things, I have found that these people have a little bit of knowledge and then as they become adults, they start filling in the blanks of what they don't know with what they believe instead of what God says. That is one of the groups that I am so passionate about. That is the people that the, the cowboy out there that thinks that, oh, you ain't got to go to church because God is my church. No, he's not. The church is people. It's not a building. The church is people. It's a community on our, on our cowboy conversations. We talked about when there's suffering and when there's this and that, that you have to have a godly community. And that is one reason, not the only reason, and I want y'all to understand something real quick. Just because I do something differently at Save the Cowboy doesn't mean I disagree with the other ways that it is done outside of Save the Cowboy, okay? But that's one reason that there's nowhere for these kids to go during service. Because I think what is vastly more impactful to a child is not how much they can understand, but that they see their parents, that they see their dads, they see their moms worshiping God. They are there with it because the Bible says train up your child in the way they should go and when they are old they will not depart from it so that's what I'm trying to do that's who we are fighting for today listen what we have failed to realize is that even Satan is a believer but he's not saved. He believes that Jesus Christ died for your sins. He believes that. 
He also believes that Jesus is the son of God. He also believes that Jesus was a real person. And he also believes that he can't touch somebody that puts their faith in him, right? Satan's a believer, but he's not saved. And what I'm afraid of is that there's a lot of people out there that are confused about that, that they, they believe that God is real and they believe all of this, but they miss the boat. They miss the gate. They think they know where they're going, but they don't, right? Think about that for just a second. Today we start a series that I'm calling grown-ups. And it's going from a childlike faith to a grown-up salvation. And we're going to take a look at some of these stories from the Bible that a lot of people will be familiar with, but instead of looking at them from the eyes of a childlike faith, we're going to re-examine them with a mature mindset in hopes that if there are any that are lost out there, that we can all learn a little bit so that we can help bring those in. So if you start in your Bibles in Genesis chapter 1, the first thing that you're going to find is the seven days of Adam and Eve. Seven days of creation which culminates in Adam and Eve, right? And... Um, it's a wonderful story. Most people know it. God created the heavens and the earth, and then he created the plants, and then he created the sun and the moon, and then the animals, and you know, you, you, you've heard all the stories. So that, that's the first stories of, of creation, and, and then it gets to the fall, you know, where, uh, where Adam sinned, right? Now, Sunday school level, a childlike faith would say, well, but, but didn't Eve eat the apple? Well, yeah, yeah, she did. But Adam's the one that sinned. Because see, Adam was put in, Adam was king of the world, seriously. He ruled underneath God, right? But he was king of the world. Adam was given direct uh, how do you say, commands from God to, to subdue the earth and to rule over it and to work it and to love it and to care for creation. Name all the animals and do all of this stuff. And oh, by the way, you can have everything except one thing. Don't eat anything off of that tree because if you do, that is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The day you eat that fruit will, the day, will be the day that you die, Right? And we know that story. So the first, if you start in Genesis, reading the old stories, is the creation of everything, including Adam and Eve. The second story is the fall of Adam, which coincidentally entered sin into the world. And there's never been anybody born since then that wasn't born into a sinful world, right? And then you have Cain and Abel. And about now, about now, I mean, with a little bit of imagination, we can understand that God created everything. With a little bit of imagination, we can understand about how God said you could do anything, but don't eat this. If you do eat it, you're going to die. And then the serpent tempts uh, Eve to eat it, and then she gives it to Adam. He eats it. All of this, with a little bit of an imagination, is understandable, 
right? It's understandable. But then you get to Cain and Abel. And now we are introduced to a new concept called sin and sacrifice. Now, you know, I mean, even most people that haven't been to church very much, they, they've heard of Cain and Abel. But right now in this story, we start getting into some areas that's like, well, wait a minute. Why did that happen? Because if you know the story of Cain and Abel, Cain is Adam and Eve's oldest born son. Abel is his little brother. Cain worked the ground. He was a farmer. Abel, on the other hand, his passion was livestock. You know, he had, he had good Angus cattle. You know, every once in a while he'd throw a Hereford in just to get the black baldy and then get rid of the Hereford. Right, Ty? I love you, brother. I'm, I'm doing this for you. And, uh, and so when it came time to offer sacrifices up unto God, Abel brings something precious. He brings his favorite animal and sacrifices it to God. And God accepts his sacrifice. Cain brings a grain offering and offers it to God, and God rejects Cain's sacrifice, right? Now, the, the funny part about this story is that God never attacks the identity of Cain. He just rejects his sacrifice. He doesn't chew him out. He doesn't tell him why. He just accepts Abel's sacrifice and rejects Cain. But then something happens. Something happens. You ever felt like life wasn't fair? that you feel like you did just what everybody else did, but they got rewarded for it and you got punished for it? Have you ever thought that life just wasn't fair? Well, guess what? Cain is thinking that right now. I work just as hard as Abel does. You know, I grow the grass. His animals just eat it. I probably work harder than he does. I brought what I had made. He brought what you had made, God, and you accepted his sacrifice, but you didn't, you didn't give it to me. Now, I don't think it had as much to do with the actual sacrifice as much as it did what was in Cain's heart. See, Cain wanted to receive everything, but only give a little bit. I mean, think about it. What, what is more precious to somebody, their favorite lamb or a few stalks of wheat, right? I mean, if we think about that, we can understand how Abel's was accepted. But then in Genesis chapter 4, verse 7, God tells Cain this. He says, you will be accepted if you do what is right. But if you refuse to do what is right, then watch out. Sin is crouching at the door, eager to control you, but you must subdue it and be its master. Man, is there a lesson in there for all of us, for all of us? Because if we go through that verse, the first thing that we notice is that God says, you can and will be accepted. You, you, you haven't gone too far. 
Like, it's okay. Maybe you messed up. Maybe you didn't do the best job that you ever could. And God's just being honest. He said, man, you didn't do that great of a job here. You know what? Maybe it's not the job that you didn't do right, Cain, but I think you're capable of more. Cain, it looks like you kind of did the bare minimum. You want everything, but you're not willing to give everything to get it. You want everything for the bare minimum, right? And that's what God is telling him. You will be accepted if you'll just do what is right. If you want something of meaning, you got to give something of meaning, right? It says you can and will be accepted by God. You're not too far gone, no matter what. You're not too far gone to turn around and do what is right. And then he says, you are free to choose whether you do what is right or wrong, Cain. But there's an implied deal in there that Cain will learn very quickly. And I wish that we could learn very quickly as well, is that you are fully free to choose. What you cannot choose is the consequences of your choice. You're free to choose whatever sacrifice you want to give, Cain. You're free to do that, but you're not free of the consequences of your choice, right? And then what we can learn from God talking to Cain is that you can be controlled by your sin. I want you to think about that for a second. You can be controlled by the very thing that wants to keep you out of heaven and away from the loving arms of God. Something can control you, but you have to allow it to control you. He says, sin is crouching at the door, eager, eager to control you, but you must subdue it and be its master. In other words, man, it's going to be tough. He didn't say, man, Ah, you ain't got to worry about that. Just don't, don't think about it and it'll be okay. No, he said, it's going to be a fight. I mean, you're going to have to grab onto it and subdue it like you're wrestling a bear. But what he implies in that is that it's possible with his help. That's why Abel's or Cain's sacrifice was so... Uh, why this story is so impassioned in people or needs to be impassioned in people is that it's never too late and that God will judge and he'll judge fairly. He knows whether you are just playing along or whether your heart is really in it. Well, guess what? Like a lot of people, Cain didn't listen to God. And what happened we know the end of the story. We do know the end of the story. It leads to the very first murder in the entire Bible. Premeditated murder because something isn't fair. Something, somebody got something from God and somebody didn't. So the answer is not to turn to God like that person was doing. It's to kill the person that was doing it right. Right? Well... Why do we even need a sacrifice? 
Have you ever thought about that? Why is a sacrifice so important? Well, it all goes back to the Garden of Eden when Jesus or when God said, don't eat that, and if you do, you will surely die, right? But he made a way out for us. He says, you know what? The wages of sin is death. That's in Romans, right? The wages of sin is death. So sin requires death. And so God allowed an animal to die so that his precious child would be forgiven. Okay? That, that there was blood for blood because the wages of sin is death. There has to be a sin to account for, or there has to be a death to account for your sin. So they used to use animal sacrifices for that. And then we all know why we don't have to do that anymore. Because Jesus came, and while no animal is perfect, God's only son was. And he was sacrificed on the cross for all of our sins, right? But back then, they didn't have Jesus that had died on a cross yet, so they had to do it with animals. Jesus' sin is death. Now, listen, you can make an offering to God... And that offering be accepted. But understand this. Every sacrifice is an offering to God. Not every offering is a sacrifice. Does that make sense? Every sacrifice is an offering. Not every offering is a sacrifice. Listen, you can't settle a blood debt with a crayon drawing. Okay? And I mean, that's, that's pretty rank. It's pretty rank. You can't settle a blood debt with a crayon drawing. So, does God just want, to, want a bunch of sacrifices in? Is that what we're here for? Is, is just a sacrifice? Actually, yes. Actually, that's a big part of it. And see, this is where we get away from the, the mushy, gushy children's stories that, that we have a role to play in this life. That God has a plan for us, and the best way to keep us on that plan is to remember sacrifice. He wants the best of what you have so that you can receive the best of what He has. Right? Bear with me. He wants, a, he wants us to sacrifice our greed in order to receive something that money cannot buy. He wants us to sacrifice our own sinful desires so that righteousness and power may fill that space to overflowing. He wants to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice to Him for the sake of others in exchange for peace that surpasses all understanding. See, this is, this is where a lot of people don't make it over the hill. They think it's too much. They think it's too much. And a lot of times it does appear too much until you do it, and then you realize that it was nothing. You realize that the biggest sacrifice you could ever make will never hold a candle to what you receive in return. 
But did you know that as much as sacrifice is needed and wanted by God, did you know that there's something else that's more important? There is something else that's more important. See, King Saul, who was the first king, the, the Israelites were tired of the judges, and the judges were just normal people that God raised up to defend Israel in times of need. And then they were tired of judges that they didn't know who they were, and blah. They, wanted, they thought they wanted some more, uh, you know, reliability, I guess, or consistency. So they cried out for a king. And, and Samuel said, God, they have rejected me, because Samuel the prophet was the last judge, okay? And, and God tells Samuel, Samuel, they have not rejected you. They have rejected me, right? So God picked Saul to, to be the king. And, and one of Saul's, well, the downfall of Saul had to do with a term called harem, H-E-R-E-M, harem, because Saul was commissioned to completely exterminate, exterminate the Amalekites. Thank you very much. Amalekites, okay? Now, when I say exterminate the Amalekites or whatever, those people named after Amalek, he said, go kill every man, woman, Child, baby, camel, chicken, goat, sheep, dog. If they have it, you kill it. Harem. Another time that was used is in the Israelite conquering of the promised land. And that's what happened at Jericho too, except for Rahab and her family. Right? Now... Let's think about this for just a second. They had it coming, just so you know, okay? They had it coming. Do you remember the story about how Moses had to have his arms held up with his staff? Guess who they were fighting? The Amalekites, Amalek, whatever, the people of Amalek right? That's who they were fighting. Do you remember Balaam and the donkey? Balaam prophesied as he was supposed to be prophesying against the Israelites. God wouldn't let him. And every time he went to prophesy against Israel, a prophecy against Israel's enemies would come out. Like he couldn't help it. Just like the donkey couldn't help speaking English because that's what he did, by the way, right? Says it right there in the Bible donkey speak English. So Balaam prophesied against the Amalekites and Gideon, a judge before, you know, whenever uh, the angel appears to Gideon and he's hiding in the threshing floor and the angel says, hail mighty warrior of God while he's cowering in the thresh on the threshing floor, right? That was Gideon. Guess who he fought? The Amalekites, right? And actually the Bible says in there that their camels were as numerous as the grains of sand on the seashore, okay? These Amalekites had been fighting against Israel the whole time. 
the entire time. But how could a loving God order the extermination? Uh, forget about the men and women, right? You ain't worried about the men and women. You know that they did wrong. What about the children, the babies, and the kids? What about them? Well, let me ask you a question. If you could and you cannot, okay, and you cannot, if you knew that these people, the Amalekites, were so sinful and had worshipped other gods, you want to know what their favorite thing to do was? Kill their own babies, okay? They were fond of killing their own babies, sacrificing them to Baal, right? But if you knew as God that if that baby was allowed to live in that culture, it would grow up and go to hell, that that child who was still innocent, not a baby, but still a child, that if left to their own devices to grow up in that culture, that that child would grow up to be so sinful and never turn to God and would be sent to hell, right? Is it better for a baby and a child to die and to go to God or to know that left to live, they will go to hell? Now, what about the kids? What about the animals? What about the animals? Listen, want to know why? Two reasons why he had all those animals killed. Number one, they're his. Okay? Let's be grown up about it. He made them, they are his. He can do whatever he wants to about it, and it don't matter if you like it or not. But number two, nobody gets to benefit from an extermination of an entire culture of people because God loved them. That's why you don't get to keep any of that stuff because there would be no profiting off of something so terrible. So how could a loving God do that? Well, I think it's the most loving thing that he's ever done, to be quite honest. I would a lot rather a child die and go to heaven because innocence is protected, even to this day, innocence is protected. But if there's very, very little chance and God can see the end, we cannot. God sees the end and says, every one of these children and babies will end up spending eternity in hell. They will never turn to me because I've seen the end. But if I wipe them out now, at least they're saved. And this sin will never go again. See, Saul went to do that, and like us, Saul does it mostly, right? See, he kills everybody except for the king and except for the choice livestock. He was ordered to get rid of all of it, right? We're closing here. Stay with me. So Saul comes back. And God tells Samuel, Samuel's not with them. God tells Samuel, the prophet of the day, he said, Saul disobeyed me. And therefore I have rejected him as king. Go tell him. <laughs> so Samuel, man, he is hot, right? He is hot. He finds Saul and I mean, he tears in to the king of Israel, the very first God-appointed and anointed king of Israel. Saul tears into him like you did your five-year-old son, right? 
I mean, just rips him a new one. And Saul once again does exactly what we would have done. You know what Saul says? Oh, you're mistaken, God. I kept these to offer them as a sacrifice to you. Yeah, sure you did. She, now, you know, you, you got, you know, it's kind of like when you caught your five-year-old son with a cookie and he's like, I was going to give it to you, dad. <laughs> right? That's what happened. That's what happened. Saul offers excuses to Samuel, but here we are. Here we are at the end. This is what Samuel says to the first anointed king of Israel. What is more pleasing to the Lord? Your burnt offerings and sacrifices or your obedience to his voice? Listen, obedience is better than sacrifice and submission is better than offering the fat of rams. Rebellion is as sinful as witchcraft and stubbornness as bad as worshiping idols. See, sacrifice is very important in the kingdom of God. But there is something that is vastly more important because a sacrifice is needed to make up for something. Why don't we just skip that part and just do what God tells us to do? And what he tells us to do very explicitly in his word is he says, hey, travel down this trail. If you do, I'm going to take care of you. You're never going to have to worry about being lost and going to hell. You just stay right here. I'll lead and guide you, blah, blah, blah. And by the way, stay away from those trails over there because they lead to box canyons or worse. And yet, what do we do? We do exactly what Saul did. We're like, well, let me go see for myself. And we go over there, right? I mean... Gosh, we look back on these old stories and think, I wouldn't have done it that way. We do it that way today. We do it. Listen, obedience is better than sacrifice. Obedience never leads to sin. Did you hear what I said? If you obey God, you will stay away from sin. There's no reason for a sacrifice then. Submission is better than the fat of rams. Listen, what does submission mean? What's the difference in obedience and submission? Well, there's, there's kind of an implied difference is that submission means you don't have to agree, understand, believe, or even like what God says to do. You just do it because out of your very mouth, you called him Lord of your life. So you either do it or he's not your Lord. And he's, he's forgiving. He doesn't mind mistakes as long as you're moving towards him. What he won't tolerate is you going somewhere else without him. He ain't going to follow you. You can return at any moment, and we hope that you do, but most don't. Most don't. And then he says, rebellion is as sinful as witchcraft. See, sin itself is a rebellion of God. Every sin is a rebellion against God. And he says, man... The way I look at it, you not doing what I tell you to do is the same as using a Ouija board or trying to curse people. He said it's the same as witchcraft. And then it says stubbornness is as bad as worshiping idols. Hey, cowboys. Hmm. Care if I talk to you all for just a second?
about stubbornness? When are you going to let that go? And you know what I'm talking about, don't you? When are you going to let that go and put your faith in God instead of whatever you're getting from hanging on to that sin? When will you finally go all in? Listen, when are you going to go all in with God? Because listen, man, most of us are playing a... Most people, I don't want to say us, I said, I said present company pretty much excluded, but if the shoe fits, boy, you, if the boot fits, put it on. Put a spur on it too, right? But listen, a lot of us are playing a very dangerous game of hokey pokey with God. We put our right foot in, we put our right foot out, we put our right foot in, right? I mean, we really are. And that's not what God wants for you. That is not what God wants from you. He is willing to go all in. And by all, he gave up his most precious thing. His one and only son. So that you could live forever. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He sacrificed his only son. How precious is your soul that God would sacrifice the most precious thing to ever exist and the devil spends every single moment before his punishment trying to keep your soul out of the hands of God. How precious must you be for the two cosmic forces to war over your soul? One side wants you to have everything. You're going to have to give up some things to get it. The other side wants to give you everything here, but you get nothing for eternity except pain and suffering. God, I pray that y'all and any you come into contact with will go. There's nothing wrong with a childlike faith. It's, it's one of the foundations but we have to kind of take that childlike faith and grow it into a grown-up version of salvation. Let's go to God in prayer. Father, I thank you for who you are. God, we don't always understand you, but I pray today that you're trusted, that we submit to you, that, that we do offer ourselves as a living sacrifice, and it's called dying to self. And God, that is a hard, narrow road, but in the midst of it, is peace and joy. There's no happiness. Happiness is, a, is, a, is an emotion. But there's something deeper. There's the power of peace and the power of forgiveness in that sacrifice that is waiting for all of us. And God, the only thing I know for certain is that you love us and that one day when we get to see you with our own eyes, we get to touch you with our own hands, is that we will realize that we would have given up everything a hundred times over to have that one single moment face to face with our creator and to receive his love. God, I pray that for everybody today. And it's in Jesus' name I pray.